I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, the morning after Wall Street's worst day since June of 2020, how should investors be repositioning? We're going to break down some opportunities in cloud, chips, and fintech to help you weather the volatility. Plus, what's the consumer telling us about the state of the economy? We'll talk to Airbnb's chief Brian Chesky in a few moments on inflation and how that's impacting spending. And then the iPhone reviews are out. We have more on what demand is signaling to investors about where Apple might head from here. John, pretty interesting day setting up. It is, and we're going to start with the market. Uh, NASDAQ coming off its worst day since June 11th of 2020, falling more than 5% yesterday. This morning, a couple interesting calls in fintech. Ray J thinks PayPal can surge almost 30% from here. That would take it back to April levels, writing, quote, we now have increased confidence forward estimates have bottomed. They go from market perform to outperform. Meanwhile, B of A says SoFi is the name to own, upgrading to buy with a $9 price target, also coincidentally about April levels, but the street not showing the same love for Block. Evercore hits the name with a rare double downgrade on competition, credit, macro headwinds, specifically pointing to weakness within seller and buy now, pay later, that pressuring total company earnings. D, we've talked to uh, a, a lot of executives uh, at Goldman this week in San Francisco, where I just was a few hours ago, uh, and, and it's hard to find direction in this market. It is. And when it comes to the fintech names, I mean, these are some of the most beaten down. What was interesting about this call, too, they still like Square Cash, but that buy now, pay later, crypto, these are sort of the hottest areas of fintech that Square or now Block got into sort of at the peaks. That note called out Fiserv, too, which is maybe a more stodgy, maybe a little bit more boring name. But it's kind of interesting to look at the different performances. Fiserv is actually held up very well in the current market environment. Year to date, it's actually up more than two and a half percent, Carl. Um, And that kind of speaks to sort of these more value tech names that have been doing much better this year. Of course, yesterday we saw that huge, the ones that got hit the hardest. It was big tech. It was unprofitable tech. It was really just a bloodbath. Uh, Yeah. And the Evercore note, we mentioned it with Kramer this morning, guys. I mean, a lot of it obviously being fed by concerns about balance sheets and potential for delinquencies. But, John, I would add that with the Twitter whistleblower testimony yesterday, there was at least some discussion about the possibility that ventures of Jack Dorsey's Twitter and Square Block um, are going to be under some scrutiny regarding their safety practices. Uh, They will. So there's the safety practice thing on the one side and then you also you mentioned Fiserv I guess it depends what gets you excited what's interesting to me about Fiserv is that they get paid off of top line transaction size right so inflation for them actually kind of good right so if people have to spend more per transaction than they were Fiserv is getting more uh, even without people necessarily doing more transactions interesting for investors to look down Uh, look more closely at the models to see exactly who benefits under what circumstances. Yeah. And we should mention, of course, that Pfizer has the Clover uh, point of sales terminals that you do see everywhere, at least here in San Francisco. Uh, Let's dig more into that sell off yesterday and to the rebound, moderate rebound that we're seeing today. Of course, yesterday it was the mega caps and chip names. Uh, They are faring better after yesterday's record losses. So let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Mike. 
Yeah, and real consistent message here all year, which is that the winners of the 2020 to 2021 bull market, the leadership has been the leaders to the downside this uh, year. So look at the way that semiconductors and mega cap growth have fared year to date relative to the equal weighted S&P 500. That's the uh, obviously 500 stocks weighted equally. And you see just persistent downside weakness, but also on rallies, not consistently a leader. So, yeah, sometimes you get the snapbacks. Apple has been a bit of an exception to this rule. But there's a general uh, principle out there that the, the leadership of one boom rarely ends up being the leaders of the next one, whenever that one might come around. And that's kind of coming true if you look at where the valuation uh, excesses and premiums still are. They are in generally those top 510 uh, mega cap names of the Nasdaq. So it's tough to see exactly what changes this pattern, especially when semis have a, a bit of a noisy fundamental story happening as well, even if the stocks are looking a little bit more inexpensive. Now, one that doesn't fit uh, into that mode of saying that they still have a big fat valuation premium is Meta. Uh, take a look at a two-year of Meta yesterday in the sell-off. It, it sort of threatened to break the lower end of this mini little sideways range. In fact, it did break below uh, what it had previously been the lower of this range. This is a picture of a stock migrating from growth investors to value investors. Sometimes that means it's a value trap initially. Uh, clearly, it's not a demanding valuation in terms of current earnings, but not a lot of strong, high-conviction sponsorship of this stock. Uh, we've given all the reinvestment that they're having to do, the billions in the new venture. So it's an interesting one to watch, I think, and one that doesn't really fit the pattern of some of the other FANG names, guys. Wow. Below 150 is definitely something to watch, yeah. uh, Mike, on Meta. Again, lows for the year. Stick with us, Mike. Uh, we'll join in on the conversation Wall Street Journal reporter and CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee, who joins us here on set. Great to have you. Great to be here. I, I had to laugh last night just talking about the overall market, the JPM last night. They say, to be clear, the, the flows are far from bullish. <laughs> but a lot of this is being driven by positioning, performance, and emotion. The same CTAs that were buying above the 50 and 100-day are now selling it back below. you agree with that? I think positioning is playing a really big role. As the journal reported, Quant Funds bought around $31 billion worth of stocks last week. But zooming out a little bit, people are super, super bearish out there. Institutional investors are shorting futures at the fastest pace of the past decade. Uh, mutual funds increasing their cash positions, hedge funds delevering. So what I'm hearing is that that light positioning means that the market can be more susceptible to these kind of big ups and downs that we've seen. And for tech in particular, uh, we've seen investors grow incredibly bearish. Investors recently yanked around $2.5 billion from tech funds, the most since February, when the sell-off was first accelerating. Right. Is that, Mike, is that sort of what B of A means when they say that some of these, the flow action is abysmal, I think? Yes, that fundamental flows, um, real directional, kind of long only, stickier money, uh, it does not have a uh, very strong belief one way or the other within this range. And though, so in the absence of that, I do think what you have is the hyper-tactical systematic traders are the ones that are setting the marginal price. It's always the way it is in a high uh, velocity and high volatility environment. When it comes to the, uh, I guess, sort of the, uh, the honeymoon is over uh, phase for tech, it's, it's been the story for much of this year where people were very crowded in that part of the market. It was considered to be an all-weather area, and you're seeing it bleed lower. Um, I don't know if that means you can point to a moment when it says, we're done, uh, we, we finally dried up in terms of the, the selling or the underperformance, but it's been pronounced. I don't think, among all the problems this market has, people being overcommitted to stocks and being too optimistic, those are not 
among them. Yeah. But Gunjan, at the same time, it seems like end of spring, maybe early summer, we're hearing a lot of people say, beware the bear market rally. Here's what it might look like, right? And at the time, stocks have been low, and I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, who's going to believe in a bear market rally? But then it seems like some people did, right? So, I mean, is this the classic scenario that, that we heard warnings about a few months ago, but we still end up somewhat surprised? It's funny, when I kept talking to institutional investors, they kept saying, look, I'm scratching my head at this rally right now. This does not make sense to me. But I think for a little bit, it did seem like inflation was coming down. It seemed like that soft landing scenario might actually happen. So I think yesterday was a real wake up call for that and for the tech trade in particular. But I think a lot of investors are still kind of holding out hopes that we might return to the environment that we saw during the pandemic, even before the pandemic, when what worked? It was being long treasuries, being long growth, being long tech. They're saying, eventually, I think, you know, economic growth is going to fall. I may still be betting on that Fed pivot. And maybe we will have a return to that environment that we saw in 2019 when the Fed did start, you know, cutting rates after, after increasing them for quite some time and the tech trade surged. Um, of course, yesterday shows, showed, showed us that that trade carries significant risks. Yeah, meanwhile, NASDAQ is at session highs. Um, Mike, you know, despite that huge sell-off that we saw yesterday in tech, there was some pockets of optimism here at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco where a lot of CEOs are speaking. Uh, we heard from Snowflakes, Frank Slootman, who said, you know, our world is looking good, not euphoric, but pretty solid. Also heard from Salesforce's Benioff, who actually some thought that he left the door open for more M&A. So where are we in terms of enterprise tech? It has come down a lot. Some of the names to pre-pandemic levels, but where are we in terms of valuation historically? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the valuation has been rationalized to a large degree. I think when it comes to the exceptions to the rule, and Snowflake is a is a stock, by the way, that a lot of people were pointing to before yesterday. It's starting to act a lot better. You know, you had your your overexcitement moment, uh, and then a little bit of a reckoning, and then it's been rebuilding since then. These are the environments where the better mousetraps start to find their customers, and it starts to work. And it's not about next quarter's earnings momentum. It's much more about you know finding uh, durable advantage. Uh, and M&A probably is going to be a part of that. It doesn't always work to the benefit of the acquirer immediately in terms of share price. But, yeah, I think that we're in that kind of a mop-up phase and that, that sort of winners getting separated from losers. I don't think it's because, in aggregate, software stocks got cheap. It's because you know, you're seeing enough uh, sort of chaos and two-way action near the lows that you're, you're trying to find people who, you know, people are trying to find uh, the ones that make sense still. Uh, you know, good, Jim, Mike mentions earnings. Do you think the debate going into year end is going to just be about uh, multiples and how they're impacted by rates? Or will, will earnings actually be part of that story? I think it's both. And what struck me when I was reporting for a recent story is how gloomy people are about tech, both from a positioning standpoint and from an earnings standpoint, where we are seeing analysts cut their earnings estimate for the information technology sector, for the communication services sector, more aggressively than for any other sector within the S&P 500. So it kind of seems like people are positioning for some of those huge moves that we saw post earnings for mega cap tech to play out the rest of the year. And we've had some really, really ugly surprises. And 
th those have shaved hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap off of some of those stocks yeah. after they've reported disappointing earnings. So I think people are saying, could that happen again? Yeah, that's, that's a good reminder of some of the landmines that we had on earnings calls, uh, particularly this summer. Yeah. Um, we'll see what the next quarter brings. Gunji, great to have you in. Thank you for uh, having thanks me. Thanks for joining us. And of course, Mike Santoli. D. Uh, meanwhile, guys, the Goldman Conference here in San Francisco continues for a third day. We will hear from Bob Chapek, Bill McDermott, many others later on. Yesterday, I sat down with Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky after his session. I started by asking him what he's seeing post-summer in terms of travel demand. We said that um, we were expecting, despite all the volatility, a very stable Q3, and we feel really good about what's happening. And, um, you know, we continue to have record bookings every single quarter, quarter after quarter. And I think that there's a lesson here, and the lesson is that, you know, people love to travel. And travel is a way for people to get out of their house, get away from screens. And so even with people going back to school, they're still going to be traveling. I'm going to talk a little bit about inflation and average daily rate. Obviously, yeah. it's a big topic for us. We've got some of those yeah. inflation numbers this morning. Um, Airbnb's ADR has moved up steadily yes. over the last few years. Um, do you expect that to ease anytime soon or even go in the other direction? So there's two reasons the ADR has gone up. The first reason and probably the more significant reason has been a business mix shift. To make it really simple, before the pandemic, a large percent of our business were people traveling to cities, staying in like one or two bedroom apartments or studios. After, during the pandemic and since the pandemic, there's been a huge mix shift. Number one, away from Asia, Latin America, even Europe, towards North America. North America has been a stronghold. Well, people spend more money in North America, so that's one reason. It's a shift towards North America, but also a shift towards essentially larger homes in vacation rentals. A lot of families getting three, four, five-bedroom homes. So this mix shift to entire large multi-bedroom homes in North America is the primary reason for the ADR increase. The other is price appreciation. We, do th we are expecting the business mix shift to start to come back a little bit as urban travel recovers and Asia recovers, which would bring nightly rates down. But it is actually surprised us how um, kind of consistent the price is. And I think it, we're going to, you know, we do expect it to modulate some, but I think it's going to be pretty consistent. As the macro backdrop softens, um, I know you guys did a lot of cost cutting at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. You reduced your marketing to almost zero. Yes. Are you thinking about more cost cutting as, you know, Fed Chair Powell talks about things like households and businesses going to feel more pain? How are you preparing for that? No, no, we're not stepping on the brakes. We're stepping on the gas. Hmm. And the reason why is like, first of all, we've generated around $3 billion in free cash flow in the last 12 months. We have $10 billion of cash in the bank, so we are totally prepared to step on the gas. We were only going to increase headcount, the number of people working at by like around 7%, and this is before the economic challenges. So basically the way to think about it is we got a huge wake-up call in 2020. We got really, really lean. We suddenly like had this incredibly efficient business. And I had made the decision at that point that we were gonna run the kind of business that we could weather any storm. And that's, that's what's happening. This is a storm and we're more than able to weather it. We're stepping on the gas. I like the analogy you used in the session downstairs. You went from being the Navy to the Navy SEAL. That's what it feels like, right? We, we have fewer people, um, much more focused on fewer initiatives, and they make a, a much bigger impact. So you guys didn't go on a hiring spree over the last few years. You cut at the beginning no. of the pandemic, and now you're hiring plans. Well, you know, you know what's interesting? We cut at the beginning of the pandemic, and something remarkable happened. The first thing that happened is we saved money, but everyone expects that. But something else happened. 
we started growing faster. Hmm. You know why we started growing faster? Because you took the very best people, you put them in the same room, there were fewer meetings, fewer trade-offs, less bureaucracy, less politics, mm -hmm. and everyone could just focus on the most important problems. Mm -hmm. So suddenly it turned out that sometimes being a little bit smaller and a little bit leaner makes you move faster or makes you grow faster. Not it's only did you grow, you became profitable. Exactly. Which was really kind of quite the milestone for I like a to, company like I like yours. to joke, I was telling this to uh, Alfred Lin at Sequoia, um, he reminded me that years ago I went to an LP conference and I said, there's a lot of unicorns by market cap, but we were a unicorn by revenue. Mm. And I like to think that now we're like a unicorn by cash flow, generating more than a billion dollars of free cash flow a year. And true cash flow, because you guys are actually doing buybacks. You had two billion, announced a $2 yes. billion buyback last yes. quarter, and that helps with the stock-based compensation yes. side of things, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, so we're net dilution. income positive, and, you know, in the stock buyback, listen, I mean, the reason we did the stock buyback is the most important thing we can do is invest in organic growth. Yeah. Then invest it in organic growth. Then do stock buybacks. But we have such a plethora of cash having generated $3 billion in the bank that we're doing all three of the above. Um, and so stock, back, stock buybacks made, uh, made sense in the context of this environment. What about option four, dividend? Um, no, we're really just focused on the buybacks and on really growing as quickly so as possible. So you don't see a dividend in the no. future for Airbnb? Not, certainly not in the near-term future. Okay. Um, during that panel, you were asked about how hotels fit into the Airbnb platform. You said they filled a network gap. Yes. <laughs> um, why not lean further in? And if I was like, let's say a, hotel, a boutique hotel operator, why would I want to go on Airbnb's platform if I'm simply filling a gap? So... <laughs> I think that hotels are incredible for certain use cases. I think hotels are great if you have to like get into a place at 10 p.m., leave in the morning, but they're also great for what we're doing right now yeah. at a conference, if you have a gather, and this is an incredible use case for conferences. The point I'm making is that hotels are not our core business. And one of the things I learned in the pandemic is it's really important to know what your core business mm. is and to focus. I had a teacher who told me in life, you can do everything you want in your life, just not at the same time. And I think that's a big lesson. Focus on what you're great at. At the same time, a lot of people stay in Airbnb's also stay in hotels. Yeah. And we have one of the best hotel booking apps in the world with Hotel Tonight. People really like that app. So I think it's an acknowledgement that we know what our core business is. We know what our strengths are. But a reason a boutique hotel should come to Airbnb is because we have as much traffic as nearly any travel platform in the world. And we see a lot of retention. When people book on Airbnb, they tend to come back. Someone else who's thinking about community living, yes. longer-term rentals, yes. is Adam Newman. Um, and he's actually scooped up thousands of apartment properties. Yeah. Um, what do you make of what he's doing? Do you ever see a world in which Airbnb, which is also focused on community, would partner with him or someone like him? Well, I don't totally know what he's doing. I, I, I read the announcement and it was a little bit cryptic. We're not focused right now on like operating buildings. Um, we were looking at doing that before the pandemic. And again, you know, staring into the abyss, what it yeah. like, gave you a lot of clarity. And the query we had is that we're really in the business of community and bringing people together and people can build stuff on our platform, but we're a little bit more of a platform. So I'm really excited about community living ideas that allow connection between people. I think that's a huge connection to Airbnb, but we're not looking to like operate communities like the focus, that. as yeah, you said. It's all the focus. Uh, Carl and John, uh, my takeaway from that interview was this is a CEO that is on the offense, not the defense. We speak to a few of them who have focused on generating cash, becoming profitable over the last few years. Of course, Airbnb had that big reckoning at the beginning of the pandemic. He used that to become more efficient 
And it sounds like that has lasted. And uh, Carl, it kind of reminded me of last week at Code when we heard from Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai talking about how his company needs to be 20% more efficient and that's going to make them better. That tone sort of rung true with Brian Chesky as well. It's fascinating, uh, Dee. You know, their approach to remote work, John, uh, is ex exactly the opposite of what, say, a lot of the legacy financial companies are thinking. Uh, they see productivity and working apart. Others say productivity comes from working together. Yeah, that's, that's true. Continue to hear lots of disagreement about that. My, my biggest macro takeaway from that uh, great conversation, Dee, was when uh, he talked about, Brian talked about the shift toward North America and houses. And I think it raises questions about how much of that is the secular shift away from products and towards services, kind of pent up demand for yeah. experiences, and how much of that is a read on the health of the middle and upper middle class consumer. Maybe it'll take a couple more quarters to see, but the, maybe that secular shift is a little bit no, of noise and being able to figure out is the upper middle class consumer still spending at the same rate? Maybe they've just shifted some of that yeah. spending uh, over to experiences. But in the winter, you know, maybe we'll start to tell the difference. There's the spending piece of it, but also the earnings piece of it, right? And I think that Chesky and Airbnb would argue that in this macro environment with the softening, with inflation, there's an opportunity for them on the supply side, for more people to rent out their houses. But it was a good conversation, um, and we'll see how Airbnb fares going into the fourth quarter. Um, after the break, guys, pessimism as an opportunity. One trader breaks down his top picks in tech. We are just getting started here. Don't go away. Get a gut check on Alphabet. That stock closing down by nearly 6% after yesterday's sell-off. And now Google is losing its appeal over an EU antitrust ruling. The EU's general court uh, upholding most of its decisions, saying Google uses its Android operating system to limit competition, although the court cut the fine by about 4% to just over $4 billion. Google saying in a statement that it's disappointed the court did not annul the decision, arguing Android has created more choice for everyone, not less. Google still has a chance to appeal the ruling in the EU's highest court. Carl? Uh, guys, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's a record fine. Uh, they did reduce some of the fine, John, uh, on, on a technical basis. But we've talked, to, look, we've talked to EU regulators a lot about how they view competition. Interesting, too, because you look at least in North America, Android's actually been losing some share glacially to some other operating systems. It has. And I mean, I'm just going to say it. When's the last fine of a really sizable tech company that really mattered? Right. I mean, like we talk about regulatory headwinds and the idea that at some point it's going to matter. And yet uh, the, the overall macro conditions and the changes that these individual operating system players make, the competition on the ground is what seems to affect the stock price the most. And, and so it, it's puzzling, yeah. right, because the regulatory action is supposed to be to, to, to keep things competitive. But it's the competition that's affecting the company. So there maybe it is competitive. 
those fines, they're basically speeding tickets without the demerit points, right? They don't do much. Four billion, yeah. not a lot, I hate to say it, for Alphabet. Yeah. Uh, meantime, we'll take a look at the sell-off yesterday. Our next guest says that that CPI number was bad news for profits and multiples, but he sees the street's pessimism as an opportunity, trying to keep an eye on high-quality names with reliable dividends. Joining us this morning, Jack Applin, CIO of Crested Capital. Jack, it's great to have you back. Uh, you do right. You say, look, uh, the number was bad news all around, uh, no sugarcoating it. Question is, do higher rates put earnings estimates in some peril? What do you think? Um, right now, no. I think that, you know, the market is now anticipating the Fed to get to around 4.3% uh, by April. Uh, that seems to be a pretty good number. And notwithstanding what we're seeing uh, last month in inflation, I do see a number of indicators to suggest that the trend is lower uh, and we're not in a 1973, 1974 environment. So I think, um, you know, I, I believe that inflation is really headed lower. Yeah, last month was a disappointment. And it's tough waiting month to month in markets that want minute to minute uh, answers. <laughs> right. So how does the Fed frame that um, and, and not let some of the, I, they would argue, good work and tightening conditions get unwound? Yeah, I think that uh, they have to, you know, continue to monitor their um, rhetoric, right? I mean, it's really the federal open, open mouth policy. We heard it uh, at Jackson Hole. Uh, that got our attention, certainly. I think this uh, inflation reading fell certainly into that narrative. We heard uh, Fed speakers last week, obviously, with, with them meeting next week, we're not going to hear from them. Uh, my sense is we will, you know, that this really hasn't changed the Fed's strategy. Uh, the fact is we got plus 0.1 instead of minus 0.1. Um, and I think the other thing is, um, you know, the rent component, they understand the rent component is one is it's an oversized influence on CPI. You know, keep in mind, uh, while rent and shelter account for nearly a third of CPI, it only accounts for about 15 percent of the PCE deflator, uh, 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 an inflation indicator that the Fed is really paying more attention to. Jack, you say that there's some quality on sale, and one of the quality names you point to is IBM. Raises a question for me, how are you judging quality, and uh, how is an investor to know that quality isn't going to be on sale for a long time, so they have to hold on to it for, for quite a while to get a high level of value? Yeah. So, you know, here's the IBM. Certainly, I wouldn't call them, uh, you know, an e industry leader in disruption. Uh, the fact is, IBM is a high quality company from a balance sheet and debt perspective. Um, they're paying currently a 5.2 percent dividend yield. And here's the, the key here is that they've been growing uh, their dividend income by about two and a half percent per year. So what I would argue is, yeah, you don't necessarily need home runs from IBM, and I'm not expecting home runs from IBM, but I do like uh, the, the pretty uh, safe and consistent dividend payments that they're making. That's pretty interesting, Jack. Uh, we did get some, uh, some more div hikes today out of uh, Keurig Dr. Pepper, for example. Uh, we'll check in with you soon. Uh, appreciate it very much. Thanks, Carl. Let's get a news update. Bertha Coombs has it for us. Hi, Bertha. Hey, Don. 
Here's what's happening at this hour. Wholesale prices fell for a second month in a row. That helped lower wholesale inflation over the last 12 months to 8.7%, the lowest reading in a year. Gas prices fell more than 12% in August, while food prices were unchanged. The core producer price index, which excludes food, energy, and trade services, rose two-tenths of a percent. Railroads are among the biggest losers in the S&P 500 today. Union Pacific has been down as much as 5%. CSX and Norfolk Southern have fallen about 4% apiece. Railroads have begun curtailing some freight service in preparation for a possible railway strike this week. In Washington, more meetings to resolve that rail dispute. Negotiators entering the Labor Department this morning. The White House urges the two sides to stay at the table and resolve their differences ahead of a possible rail system shutdown on Friday, which would be incredibly disruptive. Quite an understatement yes, to we'll say that. we'll be watching that, that very closely. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, Bertha, thank you so much. As we had to break, check out shares of Twilio. The company is the latest to announce job cuts, planning to reduce headcount by 11%. Um, so we're going to have more on some of the weakness that we're seeing in cloud stocks. Twilio is up nearly 7% on that news. We'll be right back. Cloud stocks were rising along with rates over the past few weeks, but that trend reversed yesterday. Frank Holland has more on investors' search for a bottom. Frank? Hey there, John. Cloud stocks falling on concerns about a more hawkish Fed after that hotter-than-expected inflation. Reversing those thoughts that cloud enterprise names had actually found their bottom. Now, Asana could be a poster child for what we're seeing. The stock's up about 30% month-to-date after strong earnings and even positive for this week, even after falling more than 10% yesterday. But you got to remember, it's 80% off its high, and analysts say those gains... They're largely investors buying the dip, seeing that bottom for these stocks. Twilio, also 80% off its high and higher this week, despite a more than 5% dive yesterday and even that layoff news. These thoughts that we had found the bottom and this was the time to get back into cloud stocks even created a very brief trend where the 10-year moved higher. In fact, it started this month at three and a quarter and cloud stocks, they were able to rally at the same time. You can see right here that positive correlation coming to an end, again, on concerns of a more hawkish Fed. Also, the spike in the dollar over the last month also adding to the headwind pressure. But you have to remember, cloud spending is up 30 percent so far this year. Goldman Sachs also putting out a note saying U.S. hyperscale demand outlook is still solid. And Marvell and NVIDIA, both bullish on their data center business that supports cloud. So still some tailwinds for cloud, even with the falls that we saw yesterday and a lot of those stocks up today, John. Yep. A lot of subgroups within there, too, for investors to watch. Frank, thank you. Um, Speaking of, I spoke with Several CEOs this week about how consumer spending in Q4, whether it's good or bad, is going to impact enterprise tech growth. Here are insights on that and inflation from the CEOs of Informatica and Bill.com. You know, I'm an enterprise, so I look at enterprise, but we also track consumer because we want to know where the pulse is. I'd say surprisingly, the American consumer has held pretty strong, surprisingly. I mean, we've all, with all this inflation going up, we haven't seen let up in air travel, we haven't seen let up in uh, vacation travel. I feel like it'll be relatively okay. There is definitely caution. There is definitely a sense of moderate. But I don't see panic. Well, what we said on our guidance was that we started to see uh, the growth rate and the spend on the larger customers uh, slowing down. Uh, it was still growing. It's still year-over-year growth, and it was great. 
but we, we included that and factored that into the guidance that we have. So what we're seeing is larger customers are probably thinking about this more than smaller businesses. And as a reminder, the vast majority of our customers are small businesses. And the way we think about it is, it's kind of like, hey, if you're a large business, that aircraft carrier ship, it takes a long time to get ready for whatever storm is coming, you got to steer. But SMBs, they're like little, little jet skis, right? They can turn on a dime. Deirdre, it's interesting, uh, you know, Amit Walia from Informatica sort of echoing what you heard from Brian Chesky earlier about sort of watching the, the travel trends as uh, one of the indicators of the health of the consumer, but also interesting that larger companies, their spend is slowing down. It seems like they're worried about taking on cost commitments that they're not going to be able to monetize, whether that's inventories, contracts. We've talked about, talked about uh, move to consumption-based pricing uh, and also labor. Yeah. Amid more scrutiny, right? That's, that's what nearly every enterprise tech company is dealing with. In terms of the shift to services from goods, uh, will be interesting this holiday season. Deloitte out with some forecasts already. Um, E-commerce sales, Carl, Carl forecast to grow 13.5%. And that would actually be a bigger increase than last year, which was around 8%. Um, we'll see how that shapes up. It's still early to make these kinds of predictions. Yeah, MasterCard had their spending pulse uh, earlier in the week, still looking for pretty healthy numbers vis-a-vis uh, -vis last year. As we've said, John, uh, a couple of times, just because sales slow down doesn't mean that the customer is financially stressed. In some cases, they just feel they had enough of one thing and they're going to shift their spending to another. Yeah, we're going to get some more insight tomorrow from the CEOs of Nutanix and MongoDB. Interestingly, they told me different things about how uh, they're seeing growth and demand for growth from, uh, from enterprise customer shift. Uh, great, that's great uh, color, uh, John, pretty interesting. As we go to break, take a look at some of the names continuing to move lower uh, following yesterday's sell-off. Uh, as we keep our eye on the NDX, there's rails at the top, obviously, as we got some downgrades and continued worries about uh, a rail strike. We're back in a few. Social media stocks have been hit hard as ad spend falls, but Meta particularly underperforming as of late, losing about 10 percent in yesterday's sell-off. How is the street thinking about that name? Julia Borston has some more as it bounces off at 149 today, Julia. Well, Carl, Meta has been trading at lows. It hasn't hit since March of 2020. It's down about 55% year-to-date. And the latest drop seems to be on growing concern about competition from TikTok and declining engagement. Yesterday, Morgan Stanley issuing a report saying that its data from Sensor Tower shows total time spent on Meta declined 3% in the U.S. in August from last year. That's the second consecutive monthly decline, with time spent on Instagram declining 8%, which they call particularly troubling. Of course, Instagram had been the faster-growing part of the business. In the uh, note, they write, quote, these time spent trends as total time falls and time shifts towards lower monetizing reels create more tactical risk uncertainty in near-term estimates and Meta's long-term engagement moats, which are important to the multiple that investors will pay. This all comes after on Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Instagram users are spending 17.6 million hours a day watching reels, according to in internal research. That's actually less than one-tenth of the hours spent on TikTok daily. 
That report also saying that Reels engagement declined 13.6% in the prior four weeks. So all of that comes against the backdrop of concerns about a contracting ad market and, of course, the ongoing challenge of adapting to Apple's operating system changes. And with those declines, though, analysts are still bullish. 72% of analysts have a buy rating on the stock. 26% of analysts have a hold rating. There's only one analyst that rates the company underweight. But even today, the regulatory scrutiny of Meta continues yet another potential distraction. The Senate is hosting a hearing today on social media's impact on homeland security. And Meta's chief product officer, Chris Cox, will be testifying this afternoon. Guys. Hey, Julia, you know, I'm thinking about Meta uh, relative to what, say, Evan Spiegel told us at Code about the macro. And, and Zuckerberg, too, has been very plain about how it's going to be tough sledding from here. But they have very different views, for example, on what exactly the metaverse is going to mean and what it's going to be. Yeah, Snaps, Evan Spiegel is very clear that he doesn't really want to be part of this future virtual world. He wants to create augmented reality tools that are useful for people to use in the real world, whereas Mark Zuckerberg is betting on this, you know, eight to 10 year vision from now of people wanting to live at least part of their lives in the virtual world, having them invest more in virtual goods, virtual entertainment, et cetera. Different visions. (laughs) Julia, thanks for that breakdown, Julia Borson. And up next on the show, Masasan may have a new vision in his 300-year journey. This time, he could be narrowing in on opportunity right here in the U.S. That story after a quick break. Masayoshi Sun might have another vision to come. I can confirm that SoftBank is considering launching a third vision fund. Despite the poor performance of its two earlier efforts, like Vision Fund 2, it would likely use its own cash on its balance sheet. A source familiar with the company's thinking tells me that a potential third fund would likely be more focused on U.S. investments rather than China, India, or Latin America, where it's had investments before. So potentially turning its back on those regions, despite, guys, Massasan's legendary win with Alibaba so many years ago, where he really made his name. SoftBank is still reeling from its $23 billion loss last quarter, and the paper value of Vision Fund 2, that is worth 19% less than its $49 billion initial investment. Um, this is the playbook, though, guys. Masasan double down when things are looking, valuations are looking more attractive, of course, kind of famous over the last few years for investing at the peak and running up those unicorn valuations into the stratosphere. In terms of the public markets, though, uh, John, you also have Kathy Wood doubling down on some of her biggest holdings like Zoom and Roku after yesterday's bloodbath. Well, Carl, eventually doubling down like that, you'll be right or you'll run out of chips. It's definitely going to potentially, at least, uh, lower her cost basis. Dee, it's pretty interesting. You know, some argued that uh, the fact that they're thinking about a third fund means that uh, financial conditions, they're not tight enough yet. Yeah, and, you know, they they are such a huge player. I mean, that first vision fund was $100 billion, really changed the landscape for startup investing here in the Valley and elsewhere in other countries as well, as mentioned. Um, But it could be another sign that there's more to go because Masasan still has a lot of cash on the balance sheet to invest, John. We'll see. He needs another Baba. Well, Nikesh Arora is waiting for those valuations to come down. So in a way, taking the other side of that, we'll see who's right Who's right first? Well, he was that. He was that vision, or he was that soft bank. Remember he was. years ago. He That's was right. To be the successor. It's drama. After the break, what investors should do with the launch of the new iPhone? That's when Tech Check returns. 
in just a moment. Gut check time. We talked about finding value in pessimism. JP Morgan sticking with that trend, raising estimates for Coinbase this morning, upping the target to $78 a share. They're predicting higher rates could generate another $1.2 billion in revenue for the crypto exchange with another, quote, substantial top line boost coming from customer fiat and the company's investment in the stablecoin USDC. Well, take a look at the stock. Shares are higher by almost 4% on that call. Yeah, I mean, Coinbase has billions, sitting on billions of dollars in cash. I had to do a double take, John. That stock is up more than 65% quarter to date, though still, you know, 70% off its all-time highs or more than that, maybe. Anyways, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing, as Steve Jobs liked to say, iPhone 14 reviews are out this morning. What does it mean for Apple investors? Joining us now, CNBC.com technology reporter Sophia Pitt, who has been testing the new models over the past several days. I think the question is, are there enough really cool features in the high-end phone that that users should buy those, that this is going to be a good cycle, particularly at the high end? John, my answer is yes. I would not buy a base model. I wouldn't buy a 14 or a 14 plus, but I would definitely buy the Pro or the Pro Max. Oh, definitely. So, so this is important because sometimes reviewers are like, oh, if you got a phone last year, or if you got a phone the year before, you don't need to upgrade. But the changes here are significant. Yeah, the camera is amazing. The always on display is nice. It's not my favorite feature, but the dynamic island is really cool. And yeah, I think it doesn't those- get in the way. It doesn't, actually. I think it's, it incorporates really well into whatever you're doing. Huh, because it's like there's a hole in the phone that they have to have there, and they turned it into a feature, and that's kind of, I was very impressed by that. Yeah, at least it's doing something with that ugly notch that everyone was complaining about for such a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Sophia, I've heard a lot about this dynamic island that a lot of people say is fun. Do you need the new iPhone, or... Can you just get a software upgrade on your current phone? So in order to have access to the Dynamic Island, you need the Pro or the Pro Max. You won't have it on any other phone. So that's one of the main reasons why I would say the Pro and the Pro Max are the way to go. Hey, Sophia, a lot of discussion about the watch and the fact that it's really intended, at least from a marketing standpoint, for uh, high fitness athletes who are going to be doing extreme activity. Uh, I assume they're trying to work their way into a more general audience. Uh, How much do reviews matter in that case? Yeah, I would say the watch is supposed to be, the Ultra is supposed to be for aspirational uh, customers. I haven't gotten it yet. I'm excited to get it, but I do have to say it's definitely not made for women. It looks huge on my wrist when I was able to try it last (laughs) week. Um, I wish they thought of women when they made it and made it a little bit smaller. Everyone says I look like a spy kid when I wear my Apple Watch. (laughs) Well, maybe it doubles as a blunt object, right? Because it's also really durable. So you can kind of get people. And no fairies, you're saying, to the dynamic island. You can't, you got to be born there. You got to get the, Exactly. Sophia, thank you. Thank you. 
Let's get a market check here on a day. Uh, clearly going to be an inside day, at least uh, from the current action. Dow's up 100. Uh, we've been red briefly, but recovered. Uh, really holding 39.50 on the S&P. Let's get to Frank Holland in a moment. Uh, we'll talk more about that. VIX is a little bit lower here. Uh, D, dollar action has been important to watch. It's still today on the negative side. And then, of course, uh, short-term yields. We got to 383 earlier today, and it settled down a bit. But obviously, that's where a lot of the source of the pain has been. Yeah, NASDAQ coming off its session highs. Um, it was up almost 1%, but you're seeing some of the names that were badly hit yesterday bounce back a little bit. The ARK Innovation ETF up nearly 2%. Tesla up 4%. So those growth names um, coming back, trying to rebound from yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Twilio now up 9%, Carl, after those, uh, those cuts that they announced. And HashiCorp up 45 yeah, pretty remarkable memo written by the CEO over there saying company just grew too fast. Let's, say we, let's get to Frank Collin, as we said, and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.